0: Hey y'all, welcome to Mommy's Crime Time. Today we're going to cover a case that has haunted me for my entire life. We're going to talk about a case that is so similar to the Chris Watts case as it is another family annihilator. It is another pregnant woman who was killed and two little girls who were murdered. The case we're going to talk about is coming up on its 50 year anniversary February 17th so we're right here at it February 17th 1970 right at 50 years ago this case has been all through the court system there's been movies made about it it's been everywhere books have been written about it it's a case that will go down in history it's a case that has divided people Many people feel like this person is innocent, many feel like he's guilty. At the end of this, I'll let you decide. I urge you to research it, look things up, make your own opinion about it, as I have on my own about this. It's gonna start out on a nasty, rainy, cold day in 1970. February 17, 1970. But before we go to that, I wanna to talk to you a little bit about this family. Jeffrey McDonald and Colette Stevenson grew up together in New York. They had been friends all through grade school, and finally, when they were in high school, they started dating. They dated through college. Jeff had aspirations to become a doctor, a surgeon. They were married in September of 1963, and shortly after, in April of 1964, their very first daughter, Kimberly, was born. Colette decided that she just needed to put her education on hold. She was going to be a stay-at-home mom and take care of of Kimberly. But Jeff, he continued his education. He went to Princeton and then off to Northwestern. On May 8, 1967, their second daughter was born, little Kristen. The next year, 1968, Jeff graduated, completed his internship, and joined the military. At that point, his family was moved to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, which is right here by where I live. And it is insane that you can still talk to people about this case, and it's still so raw. Jeff moved up quickly. Soon he became the group surgeon of special forces, the Green Berets. And Colette continued to stay at home with the girls, but she did plan to return to school to be a teacher. And in 1969, she became pregnant with their third child, a boy. Early in the morning, about 3:30 a.m., it was a Tuesday morning, February 17th. A call came in for help. And a man dialed, and saying that he was in a desperate situation. It appeared he was in and out of consciousness. He said his name was Captain MacDonald, and he needed a doctor. There had been stabbings. He needed military police, ambulance, everything to come to his home, on 544 Castle Drive. He dropped the phone, but the line stayed open. The operator continued. She called the military police at Fort Bragg. And moments, actually minutes later, he picked the phone back up. The MPs made their way there. And when they arrived, they found Jeffrey McDonald lying next to his wife, blood all over the master bedroom. He was 26 years old and had a puncture wound to his chest, but he was alive. Colette, on the other hand, also 26, in her fourth of, month of pregnancy, was dead. Five-year-old Kimberly and two-year-old Kristen were also dead in their bedrooms. The question is, who did this? Who would kill this family? Who would take the lives of these beautiful, innocent little girls? This captivated Fayetteville. It captivated Fort Bragg. It was everywhere. It's important to tell you that Jeffrey McDonald who is now 76 years old, is in prison serving three life sentences for the murders, although he does to this day maintain his innocence and say that he was wrongly convicted. The facts for and against him, it's been all over. He has been through many, many, many phases of the court system. There have been about five books. There's been television movies and several podcasts about him. There's many Facebook pages, Free Jeffrey McDonald. Some of the books that were written about him were Fatal Vision. You may have seen that movie as well, Fatal Justice, and recently in 2012, a book called Wilderness of Error, where this book, unlike Fatal Vision, goes to say he is an innocent man. They lived on Fort Bragg in a housing area for officers and non-commissioned officers these were these brick buildings there were one and two-story apartments they lived on the end so they were in a one-story apartment now one of the MPs that was on his way to the house the morning of the murders testified that he did see a woman in a floppy hat remember this because this will come up later Everything did seem quiet when they got there. There were several MPs. They tried knocking on the doors. They didn't want to break in, but they did find that the back door to the utility room was open. This led straight into the bedroom, and there they found Colette pregnant on her back. She had blood all over her, blood all over the carpet, her head, stab wounds. It was a horrible sight. MacDonald was laying face down with his head either on Colette's shoulder or chest. And his pajama top was off and lied, laid across Colette's chest. Someone had took blood, ultimately Colette's blood, and wrote pig in blood on the headboard of their bed. McDonald asked the MPs to please go check on his children. And as they did, they found that both Kimberly and Kristen had been beaten and stabbed to death. When they got to the living room, they didn't notice a whole lot out of place. They did see that the coffee table was on its side, flower pot knocked over, and some eyeglasses. But that was about it. McDonald said that after he went to sleep on the couch, he was awoken to noise. He could hear screaming. So he gets up. And he sees two white men, a black man and a white woman, in the living room with him. He said one was wearing an army jacket. The woman had this long blonde hair and a floppy hat, and she had on brown boots. She said that He said she was holding a candle, and she was chanting, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. He claims that he fought the intruders. He got hit in the head. He was stabbed, and he kept fighting until he fell down. And he woke up in the hallway. He said he found Colette, and he tried to give her CPR, but at that time, air came out of her chest. And that's when he covered her with his pajama top. He then made his way to Kimberly's room, again attempted CPR, but the air came out of her neck. He found the same thing when he went to little Kristen's room. Then he says he called for help. Ultimately, he dropped the phone, took time to go to the bathroom and wash his hands. And then three minutes later, he attempted to call for help again, realizing the operator was still on the line. Now, they found the knife in the bedroom. McDonald said that he pulled the knife from Collette's chest. It is important to note that every member of the McDonald family had a different blood type. They were able to pinpoint where each person was and find blood all out the house. We'll go over that in a moment. They also found a bloodstained club and an ice pick along with another knife in the backyard. It's important to realize that during this time, Fort Bragg was not like it is now. Now if you you try to go into Fort Bragg as a civilian, you have to wait in line, you have your vehicle searched, you have to provide ID, they check everything before they let you on. At this time, there was no security gates, there was a security check, it was open. Anyone could come and go on Fort Bragg as they pleased. At that point in time, I guess the safety wasn't quite the way it is now. There wasn't so much of a threat. But an important thing to note about the Fayetteville area is that we had our fair share of hippies. In an area that we refer to as Haymont Hill, it was the central location of all of the hippies. And there was a lot of drug use. And this is what McDonald claimed happened, that he awoke, he saw these drug, you know, hippies, and they were all chanting at him, and they were killing his family. But one thing that definitely stood out about this was that the word pig on the headboard of the bed, it paralleled with the Manson murders, which occurred only six months earlier. So people were worried in the Fayetteville area, in the Fort Bragg area, Is this a copycat killer like there was for Manson? People went crazy. They started nailing doors and windows shut, buying guns, doing everything possible to protect themselves. The investigation into the case started shortly after. There were a lot of questions. If you were going to be an intruder in a home, break in and kill a family, why would you not go for the biggest threat first? Why would you not kill the man? Why would you only give him very, very small wounds in comparison to those of his wife and children. Jeffrey McDonald was nowhere near injured the way that his wife and kids were. He had a couple bruises, things like that, nothing major, but he did have a deflated lung where he was stabbed with the ice pick. But Colette was stabbed 16 times with the knife, 21 times with the ice pick and hit in the head with the club at least six times. Both of her arms were broken, as if she was defending herself. All the lacerations were straight to the bone. She even had a fractured skull. Kimberly was hit twice in the head, and stabbed with a knife eight to ten times in her neck. She also had a fractured nose, and a fractured cheekbone that was protruding through her skin, along with multiple skull fractures. Kristen was stabbed 17 times with a knife, Fifteen puncture wounds, likely from the ice pick in her chest, and her hands were cut in what appeared to be defensive wounds. And all McDonald had was some bruises and an ice pick stab to his chest? Doesn't exactly make sense. He was nowhere near in the case or the condition that his wife and children were. In the book Fatal Justice, they say that he was wrongly convicted that he did have three bruises on his head, a bruise on his shoulder, and upper arm, and a bruise on his left forearm. But nothing, in no way, shape, or form compared to the wounds of his wife and children. They say that he also had a punctured bicep, cuts in his hands, four or five ice pick stabs. But one of the most important things to remember is Jeffrey McDonald was a surgeon. He knew precisely where to injure himself and where it would be fatal. And not fatal. I feel like this is very important because he knew if he stabbed himself, where to do it at. There was also a lot of odd things about the crime scene. If you were fighting off four people in your living room, you would think that the room would be in complete disarray. But this was not the case. Basically, all there was was a coffee table on its side, a pair of glasses thrown over to the side, And that's about it. The adjacent room in the dining room had a China cabinet standing. There was Valentine's Day cards still standing, China still standing. But none of this was disturbed. You would think if there were a huge fight, a life or death fight, you would have had more disruption and more damage. The CID had investigated the case, and they determined that he killed his family and then intentionally injured himself. And that he staged the living room. So, in 1970, on May 1st, he was charged by the army with the homicides. A very important part to note is that this case was so huge and so new to Fort Bragg, Fayetteville that the investigation itself was flawed. Now, they were thorough, don't get me wrong. They did a very good job at collecting the evidence and trying their best to preserve the scene, but they also made some pretty big mistakes between the crime scene of the house and the laboratory. Some of these mistakes were, for example, the ambulance driver who responded stole Jeffrey McDonald's wallet. And he also set up the flower pot that had been knocked over in the living room. Now, this added to the impression that he staged a scene, but when it was set upright, made it look as if there wasn't a struggle. There were no fingerprints of the children's bodies, and some of them that they did take from the crime scene were actually destroyed, along with some of the bloody footprints. Now, it's important to bring up one note here. Jeffrey McDonald's pajama top. He says... He was attacked in the living room. In one version, he had it over his head, wrapped around his arms as he's fighting them off, and that's where the stab wounds in it came from. When folded, the stab wounds line up perfectly with Colette's stab wounds. There were no fibers in the living room, but there were over 40 fibers from his pajama top in the master bedroom, and there were even some found in Kimberly's bedroom. Very hard to believe you were attacked in your living room. There are no fibers from your pajama top, as well as no blood found in the living room. They did find some hairs, which too were determined they were synthetic. They could have came from a doll or a wig. So Jeffrey McDonald has leaned on that a lot, saying that I saw a woman in a wig. So obviously it had to be the hair from her, but it could have been hair from one of the girl's dolls. Also, this home was where several army personnel had lived over the years. I'm sure a hair or anything had been left behind. There was a piece of skin that was found on Colette's fingernail. It was possibly from her scratching her attacker, but it actually disappeared after it was collected. In the living room, there was an Esquire magazine. Do you want to know what the cover story was? The Manson murders. How convenient. Whoever killed the family tried to make it like a Manson murder, and there just so happened to be an Esquire magazine on the Manson murders in the living room. But the investigators chose to pick it up and read it, not preserve it. They also realized that when the MPs first arrived, one of Colette's breasts were exposed. But in the crime scene photos, they show her upper body completely covered. So this proves that evidence was moved. They also let people come into the scene all over the yard. There were news people, neighbors, everywhere before the scene was processed. And they even let the garbage be collected and take off, taken off before they did anything with it. There were also photographers who were coming up to the windows taking pictures. They were all over the backyard. They were everywhere. As I mentioned earlier, it was a rainy day. There was mud trampled all in and out of the house they didn't take any precautions to make sure they did not tamper the crime scene. There were so many things contaminated, it was hard to know what was evidence and what was not. They decided that they were going to have an Article 32 hearing against Jeffrey McDonald in the military. Now, an Article 32 investigation is similar to a grand jury proceeding. The only difference is... That the preceding officer, not a judge or jury, makes the recommendation on whether or not to prosecute the defendant. Obviously, it became clear that the crime scene was not preserved as it should have been. And it also came out that the hair in her hand did not come from that Jeffrey McDonald. And nor did the candle wax found in the house match any candles in the home. This lined up with Jeffrey McDonald's story that there were hippies chanting, kill the pigs, holding a candle in the house. It was a big thing at the Article 32 hearing where they were saying that there was no way this co- coffee table could have landed on its side, that they tried this repeatedly. And every time they tried to recreate it, the coffee table would land upside down. So the officer decided that he would just go and try it himself. And lo and behold, when he kicked it, it fell to its side. It was also revealed that a lady named Helena Stockley of Fayetteville who was 17 years old and a police informant and a major member of the hippie community, had told people that she was there. She had told many people she thought she was there, but she wasn't sure because she was so into drugs. She was high all the time and she couldn't remember if she was there that night or not. So this being her statement that she thought she may have been there, it implicated her. So it also lined up with the woman in the floppy hat because she was known to wear a blonde wig, boots, and a blonde wig. Which, remember, I said it would come back. They believed that they had saw a woman sitting a few blocks away, dressed that way. Is it, you know, was it her? Was she the one there at the murders? Will we ever know? Probably not. In October of 1970, the Army dropped all charges at the Article 32 hearing. And McDonald was given an honorary discharge in December of 1970. So in 1971, he decided it was time for a change. He moved to California. And in California, he became the director of emergency medicine at Long Beach Medical Center. Got him a nice condo, sports car, and even a 34-foot yacht. Doesn't sound like a grieving husband to me. I would think that he would be mourning the loss of his Wife and children, not necessarily living the life in California, and this was very, very bothersome to Colette's family. This ultimately, along with some other things, led them to want the case reopened and looked at. So, since in early 1971 Helena Stockley was again given all these con- contradicting statements, say she, "I was there," "I wasn't there." They decided that they would give her a polygraph. The examiner concluded that she believed she had been there, but because of her drug use, even if she believed she had been there, it didn't mean she was there. Because of all the drugs she had used, she was not in her right state of mind. They tried a hair sample from her, and they did not match any hair found in the crime scene. Again, if she was wearing the wig, that could explain this. As I said, Colette's family originally said, you know what, Jeff is our son-in-law. He would never hurt his family. They stood by him in the Article 32 hearing. They defended his innocence. But they later became convinced that maybe he did have something to do with it. After they had saw him on the Dick Cabot show, where he showed no grief, no outrage that the murderers were still out there, the only thing he talked about was his anger with the Army. This bothered Freddy Kassab, which was Colette's father. He felt like this was not the behavior of a grieving husband and father. He should have been upset. He should have wanted them to find these killers, let alone the fact that he was just living up the life in California I didn't like his family never existed. So in 1971, Kassab returned to the crime scene with the CID. They reenacted Jeffrey McDonald's story and found it to be completely implausible. Finally, in 1974, the grand jury convened and evaluated the case, and they determined that he should be indicted, and he was in 1975. 1975. It took until July of 1979 to take him to trial. The trial ran from July 19th to August 29th of 1979. Most of the jurors said he didn't sound like a man telling the truth. He had originally said that when he went to get Beau Colette that he realized that Kristen had wet the bed. So he went back, and that's why he was sleeping on the couch. The analysis determined it was Kimberly's urine on the bed, not Kristen's. It also appeared that someone wearing surgical gloves wrote Pig on the headboard of the bed in Colette's blood. It just so happened that that there was a fragment of that glove left at the scene. And these gloves were extremely similar to the gloves underneath the kitchen sink of the McDonald's. Again came up the pajama top, the stab wounds that lined up perfectly with Colette stab wounds on her chest. It looked like he had laid the pajama top across her chest and stabbed her. Now, why would he do this? I don't know. Does it make sense? No. But what part of this does make sense? You have to remember this was before we had dna evidence but luckily as i said each member of the family had different blood types so they were able to look where each blood type was and determine who moved through the house colette mcdonald's blood was found in the master bedroom where she was killed but also in kristen's room not sure how she ended up in kristen's room now kim's blood was mainly in her room as well but there were several drops at the entrance of the master bedroom Kristen's blood was only found in her bedroom, but Jeffrey McDonald, his was found in the bathroom and kitchen. There was none in the living room. Isn't this where he was attacked? Why is there no blood in the hallway? In the kitchen, they also said that there was some on the um, box of gloves underneath the sink, which will go along with the story that he was the one who wrote Pig in the Blood to stage the scene to walk a Manson murder. Now, prosecutors had the articles in the Esquire magazine and they said that they felt like this was what he read before bed. This is what inspired him to do this and this is how he tried to cover up the murders. They pointed out the similarities between the magazine and the murder, for example, Pig, where he was also written on the door in the blood of Sharon Tate. It only took the jury less than a day to deliberate and they ultimately found McDonald guilty of second-degree murder in the deaths of Colette and Kimberly and first-degree murder in the death of Kristen. I believe he should have got first-degree murder for all three, not just Kristen. Now, it's important to note that he still, to this day, maintains his innocence. He says he had nothing to do with it, and he will not waver from this. The home was located at 544 Castle Drive. And for years, it was called the murder house. Everyone wanted to go see it. It was a crime scene for nine and a half years. It remained boarded up for 14. So for all of these years, nine and a half years, all of their belongings were still inside. I'm not sure if they were still there after it was boarded up. But I do know that finally in 1983, they released it back to the military. And by 1987, they renovated it. And they had a new family begin living there. 30 years after the murders, there was a 31-year-old sergeant living there. And he said that people were still coming to the home, still taking pictures. People even knocked on the door to ask to take pictures. I can tell you, living here my whole life, I've driven by that location. I remember being younger and wanting to go by there just to see it. And not too long ago, my own sister drove by. And although the house was torn down in March of 2008 to make room for a community recreation center, it still attracts people to this day because of what happened there. It reminds me to Chris Watts' house, where people still drive by there, and it's almost like a shrine to the Watts family. People did that, too, with this one. Now, McDonald was not happy with his conviction. He honestly fought it tooth and nail every way he could. He appealed the conviction, and he was released in 1980. The Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals said, you know what, you didn't get the right to a speedy trial as you're supposed to, so they released him in August. But in March of 1982, the Supreme Court said, "Uh uh-uh, and sent him right back to jail. Where he belonged, in my opinion. So finally, DNA evidence has come out. And they decided, you know what, we should test this hair that was in the bedroom of Kristen underneath her fingernail. But it wasn't matched to anyone in the home. So, whose hair was it? Where did it come from? It's never been determined. In 2012... He finally got the new hearing that he had been asking for, and this case was going to the U.S. District Judge James Fox. They said that he deserved a new trial for several reasons. For example, there was a U.S. Marshal, and this U.S. Marshal had actually drove Helena Stockley from South Carolina to McDonald's trial in 79, and she admitted to this U.S. Marshal that she was in the eye of the murders. She said that she had been coerced by a prosecutor to not tell anyone or she would be charged with murder. This alone would grant him a new trial because this would make it, you know, she knew more and she was told not to say anything. There was DNA testing done on the hairs, but like I said, they weren't matched to anyone. And the prosecutor said, you know, these could be anyone's hair. It may have been an incident of crime, seen contamination because you had all these people in and out, in and out. You weren't, you know, holding the crime scene as it should have been. And they also said that the dead marshals' claims could not be trusted because it was contradicting to other testimony by other marshals showing that he never even took this trip. But since he died in 2008, they couldn't ask him. Judge Fox ruled against McDonald in 2018. And of course, he appealed, but he lost in 2018 to the Fourth Circuit Courts. And the Supreme Court denied this past October to take his case. So he has done everything in his power to appeal this conviction. He since remarried. He married a woman named Catherine while he was incarcerated. And she is his, you know, voice outside of prison. And she said that he told her that if he has to die here, quote from him, if I have to die here, I will never admit to something I didn't do. So he was first eligible for parole in 1991, but he didn't get a parole hearing until May of 2005, and he was denied. At that point, they told him he needed to wait 15 years for reconsideration so this may may of 2020 he will have another opportunity at parole but as of now he hasn't applied for a hearing i'm sure if he does try to get parole they're going to want him to admit his guilt and he refuses to do that does he refuse to do that because he's innocent or does he refuse to do that because he has maintained his innocence for all these years and he doesn't want to say oh yeah i've been lying for 50 years so we don't know right now he has no opinion court cases There's nothing going on with it. We're just waiting to find out, is he going to try to take or try to get parole or not? Now, this case has definitely gotten a lot of people talking around our area about it. You know, it's one of those things that is kind of infamous around here. We all know about the Jeffrey McDonald case. It reminds me so much of the Chris Watts case because it's hard to understand and believe that you could stab your wife and children this many times his wife was pregnant with his first son. I know that there has been a lot of controversy ever. Did he do it? Did he not do it? I, for one, have always believed that he did it. I don't believe that anyone would come into your home and leave you alive as the man, but kill your family that way. I don't believe they would have just left him passed out in the hallway. He would have been in the same condition they were. There's been things have been said about considering he was a doctor. And there were a lot of of the soldiers that had gotten addicted to painkillers. And he was one of the toughest doctors against that. He wouldn't prescribe it. And he did describe the intruders as having on military jackets. So did they say, you know, we're going to get him back for that? Don't know. It just doesn't make any sense. Was it really a deranged group of hippies? Helena Stockley was a very disturbed woman. She could never tell the truth about anything Is her story credible? Don't know. But I do encourage you to read Fatal Vision and then read Wilderness of Error, which I myself am going to read because I like to look at things objectively. I like to say, you know, if I feel that you're guilty, then I I want to have looked at all the evidence and all the theories. I don't want to be one-sided. So I do plan on reading that book. But I feel like we're coming up on 50 years, 50 years that these people have been gone. Colette should have grandchildren by now. Her daughters, you know, they they should have their own children and live in a full life in their 50s. Instead, their lives were taken away at such a young age, and for what? I will never understand these family annihilator cases. It doesn't make sense. What kind of new life are you really getting? You're getting life in prison. What are you getting out of it? If Jeffrey McDonald did do it, he really thought he could get away with it and he was incredibly wrong, because thanks to Collette's father, he did everything in his power to make sure Jeffrey McDonald spent the rest of his life in prison. If he did it, he's right where he belongs. If he's innocent, it's a travesty of justice. I'll leave it up to you to decide. I want to wish everyone a happy Valentine's Day weekend. Remember to pray for the family of the McDonald's, for these poor little children that lost their life way too early. Thank you for listening to Mommy's Crime Time have a great night.